part of my writing. I think it is, I think it's actually a joy in the process of writing, a joy and, and a sense of discovery because of the way I write, but all of this in terms of plot, but also why I write to discover things about what I think of the world and how the world works. I don't write because I know, I write because I'm trying to work it out. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. My guest today on the convo couch is Solari Gentile. Solari is an Australian mystery slash crime writer who once studied astrophysics and worked in law before turning her hand to telling stories. After a number of shortlistings in 2008 and 2009 with her work, Solari was contracted by Pantera Press for her first novel and has written 15 books since then, many of them in her Roland Sinclair murder mystery series set in Australia in the 1920s. Her latest release is something a little different, a contemporary murder mystery published by Ultimo Press set in Australia and Boston about a best-selling crime author who becomes unwittingly connected to a serial killer. It's a cleverly written story within a story, and I've just had the most fabulous conversation with Solari about it. And in this chat, we talked a lot about Solari's writing process. She is notoriously someone who is an absolute pantser And as a crime writer, doesn't actually know who done it until she gets to the end and the story basically tells her and the characters tell her who done it. So I was really interested to see whether that same process worked in the writing of this book, which is actually quite different in that it's a story within a story. So there's a lot of really great, interesting stuff in here about the writing process, about trusting your instinct as a writer, and just getting to the point in your writing career and in your belief and confidence in yourself that what is actually going to come out of the fingers as you're typing is going to be something you can trust and believe in. Solari lives on a beautiful property in the foothills of the Snowy Mountains where she writes and farms truffles, interestingly. We had great chats about dogs and about the fires too, which lived through a couple of years ago and her property was completely devastated apart from her house, so we start off chatting about that. So I'm sure that you're going to enjoy this interview with Solari Gentile, mainly about her writing, about her new book, The Woman in the Library, and just about the whole writing life. So grab a cuppa, join Solari and I on the convo couch in this episode of Rights for Women. Oh, Solari, congratulations on The Woman in the Library and welcome to Rights for Women. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to chat. I think you were actually on the podcast it'd be probably three years ago now, I think, with Kel. It was well, probably two years ago because it was almost immediately after the fires. Okay. Okay. Everything was so, still smouldering. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. And we were just talking before we started recording about the recovery from the fires. You are getting now back on on track with all that. Yeah, look, it's one of those things. Disasters change some things permanently. And I think if you're trying to get back exactly what you had before, that's a fool's errand. You've just got to accept that some things are gone forever. Some things will never be quite the same. Other things will be better. I'm always reminded of it when I go out to the front of my house. That We used to live in a beautiful tree corridor and had beautiful gums everywhere. And so I was in the woods. But since the fires, all those trees are gone. But I have got a wonderful view of the mountains as a result. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know we're there. Uh, so it's one of those things you've got you've to roll with the punches and, yeah. uh, and take the good with the bad. Look for the silver lining for sure. Mm. Do you, I'm just thinking about, because I know that the, the devastation was so complete around your place and the bush was completely burnt out, but is there many, are there many of the trees coming back? Like I know down the coast at our place, there's those fuzzy little green yeah. shoots coming up, but there are a lot of trees that are just never going to recover. How, Look, what's happening some, with you? There's some hills that have never, they were just so badly burnt, there's nothing there. Mm. We did have the, the fuzzy sweaters, the green yeah. sweaters. And I remember just riding up, driving up our road at night under the headlights. It had, you were under the water because the fuzz starts from the bottom of the trunk and they look like giant seaweed. It was quite a, a surreal experience immediately after the fires. Some of those trees don't act, aren't actually viable. It's just panic growth and they right. die. There was a, so in the forest behind my place, I think there's a lot of regeneration and a lot of things coming back, but I think we lost 50 or 60% of the trees wow. just gone. Mm. And there will be others I know that will meet their maker soon or the passing of time. But by the same token, there's lots of new trees growing where they would once not have stood a chance into the shade of giants. Yeah, um, yeah. It just, it just makes way. So there'll be new trees that come up yeah. uh, this in time. So at the moment... It's a little bit of a battle for supremacy with all the new things coming up. There's weeds, of course, but there's also natives and things that once have been lying dormant in the soil for years and all of a sudden uh, they're out as well. So it's an interesting world out there. Yeah, very interesting to watch and see what, what the, well, we won't see the final result, but how things evolve over the next <laughs> yes. couple of decades. Yes. <laughs> yeah. My grandchildren will thank me for yeah, the planting. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so let's get on to chatting about the woman in the library and writing and all that sort of stuff. I was trying to put into words how to describe the plot when I was working on the intro and I found it really difficult because it's this whole story within the story type thing. So I'm going to hand that over to you <laughs> and let you describe to listeners what the book's about. Okay. As you said, it's a story within a story. But that, again, is folded into the pages of a correspondence. The book opens with a letter and the letter is addressed to Hannah and it's written by a character called Leo. So it becomes obvious that Leo is in Boston and he's writing to Hannah, who is an established writer in, in Australia. And he is, he's also an aspirant writer. He's an admirer and a fan. And he offers to help Hannah set a book in Boston because she can't come over because of the bushfires there after COVID. So there's that thread of the story or the overarching structure. Within that, the reader sees the story that Hannah is writing 
chapter by chapter. So she writes a chapter in response to each letter that Leo sends her with research and advice and so on. And so there's a two threads of those stories working through. That second thread is centered around a young writer called Winifred, Freddie, to her friends. And Freddie is in Boston under the auspice of a very prestigious writer's fellowship to write her first novel. And so she happens to be in the Boston Public Library in the reading room, basically procrastinating is what I think she was doing. She's staring at the ceiling and she's looking at the people at the, at the table around her, thinking up backstories for them, when a scream shatters the silence and everybody stops what they're doing immediately, instinctively knowing that something terrible has happened. But when a search is conducted, there's nothing. There's no body. There's no reason for the scream. It's almost as if it came out of nowhere and disappeared into nowhere. But, of course, it didn't. So that's basically the book in the in a nutshell. Freddie's story and the story of the woman who is writing Freddie told through a correspondence. It's so interesting, Solari. It's just like when I first started reading it, I was a little bit like, Whose story is this? Is it Hannah's story? Is it Freddie's story? And it, I felt there was this blurring of the lines quite quickly as you got into the book. Was that sort of deliberate from the beginning or did that idea of blending those stories emerge as you got into the writing? Because you have, I know notoriously you have a very interesting writing process in that when you <laughs> write your mysteries, you don't know who did it. Yeah. So I'm really curious to see how that worked for this book. It was the same. So the genesis of this book came when I was writing the 10th Roland Sinclair book. And that book was set in Boston. And I wanted to set a role in Boston. The series had been embraced by American writers and I wanted to set a book in their country as a nod to them. But the problem was I hadn't been to, at that stage, I hadn't been to America since I was a teenager. And of course, I'd never been to Boston. (laughs) So I was presented with this problem because the last thing you want to do is have to make this gesture of setting a book in a readership's country and then mess it up. Yes. Uh, but, and have all those I, errors pointed out to you in emails exactly, and messages. <laughs> exactly. So I had a I have a friend, a dear friend, who was in Boston at the time, and he's an American writer. And Larry was writing his book, which is a nonfiction book called A Theft of Privilege. And he was working in the Boston Public Library. And I wrote to Larry and I said, you know, would you mind if I pick your brain while you're over there so that I can write this Rolly book? And he, of course, in typical American generosity, said, of course, whatever you want, I'll do it. And so that was fine, except the issue came up because Larry is a much better researcher than I am. So he'll go to lengths that I wouldn't even contemplate. So not only was he answering my questions, he's sending me newspaper clippings and menus, suggestions of where people might eat, maps. And then he started sending me photographs of sidewalks so I could see how the snow piled up on it, weather reports. And then one day there was a murder about two blocks from where he was staying. And Larry thought, oh, so Larry's a crime writer. She might be interested in what an American crime scene looks like. So he took himself off onto the crime scene and luckily the body had been removed by the, at this stage, but he took footage of the crime scene. And I'm in Australia and I get this email from Larry and I open the file attached to it. It's a crime scene. It's obviously a murder scene. And I thought my husband happened to be standing behind me and he said, gosh, I hope Larry's not killing people so he can send you research. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I thought, Mm. <laughs> I hope not. 
99% sure he's not, but gee, it's an interesting <laughs> idea for a novel. And so that's where it started. And so I knew I would, I had to finish writing the Roland book, but I thought I have this idea for a novel and I know that it will start Dear Hannah. Okay. And it will be, and that's all I knew. And so when I started, that's just how it evolved. I just started writing that way. And then at the time I thought, I must, I might have thought in the beginning maybe Hannah would reply. And But by the time I got to the end of Leo's letter, I thought, no, I don't want to hear what Hannah says oh, directly. That's interesting because that's one of my questions to you. Were there ever any replies from Hannah? No, her reply was in the chapter in that the she story. wrote. Yeah. yeah. And part of the reason that I really like that is for me, you can find a writer's true self in their work. Much, It's much more useful than going onto their Facebook page or their Twitter page or even talking to them. What we really truly feel about things, we can safely put into a novel. And so I wanted to, I wanted readers to find Hannah through the work she created. And you do see, you do, I hope, feel like you do know Hannah a little bit by the end of it, by what she writes, what she refuses to write. Um, yeah. Yes, and that was really interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, so that, that was basically it. But, again, it's I write you know, the Roland Sinclair series and every other book. I just sit down and I start writing and it happens. <laughs> it doesn't actively feel to me like I'm creating. It feels like I'm discovering the story that was always there. Oh, I love that. I love it, Just discovering it, yeah. So you said you started with Dear Hannah. So this, the book opens with this letter from Leo who is – He's a beta, beta reader, isn't he? Type. Yeah, fan, yeah. He's type. a fan, a colleague, and I yeah. have those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have, you know, <laughs> readers who are just particularly interested, and I'm really happy to communicate with readers on these things. But there's always a stay, a point at which it gets to be a line crossed. Yeah. And so, in the beginning, Larry is everything anyone could want from a colleague and a beta reader and a friend. He's charming and funny and he's so admiring and encouraging and he's really enthusiastic about her work and he wants nothing more than to help. It's only as the novel progresses and you read more about Larry or read more of Larry's letters, you suddenly realise that there's something quite dark about the man and he does seem to know a lot about murder. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we won't go too far down that track because we don't want to give too many spoilers away. But then once we get over that sort of opening letter from Leo, I guess it then opens with Hannah in the library looking around, looking for inspiration. She sees these characters who are the characters that she then creates this story about. So there's this really subtle morphing from Hannah, like us seeing Hannah and seeing what she's doing to then just going straight into the story which I loved. So when you were writing the book, I think I'm curious about the writing of of it and then versus the redrafting Mm. and structuring of it. How how did the writing process go in terms of the scenes that you wrote consecutively and then when you got to the stage where you had to pull it all together and redraft it, how did you go about restructuring some of those scenes? So how do I say this? I write chronologically, so from first page, first word to last word and I don't redraft <laughs> it's a one draft job oh my goodness oh, even for this book for a book like this that has these all these different elements and timelines and stories that was still consecutive yeah 
it was consecutive. It's how I, and it's how it works for me. It's just how it, I think chronologically, if I thought out of sequence, I don't think I could do it. And so for me, I was looking at the story probably from above Hannah and Leo and then going deeper. So their story needed to take place before the deeper story could take place because yeah. Hannah write it. And that's how I've always written. It doesn't, I, and it's the flip side of not redrafting. People think that writing, being a one draft writer is an act of genius. It isn't. It just is my pros. And the flip side is that I find it very difficult to change anything as a result because it comes out the way it comes out. I, it's to me, once it's down, that's what happens. That's the story. Yep. That's it. That's what happened. So if someone says to me, well, if you did this, you could make it more exciting here. And I say, yeah, that's nice, but that's what happened. <laughs> if I, if I, if I um, so for me, it just, it, it's just the way I write the story. Once it's formed in my head and put onto the paper, that's what it is. Okay. I was a lawyer before I was a writer. Mm. So it may be that part of the legal training is to choose carefully. You make your decisions yeah. very carefully and you choose your words very carefully. So it tends so that you don't have to redraft, basically. Yes. Yeah. And are you finding, as we all do, I'm sure I probably already know the answer before I ask this question, but when you're not actually at the computer writing, is that story constantly in your head? Yes, all the time. And I live the story. I dream Mm. about it. I play with it. And quite often what I'm thinking about is not within the storyline. I'm thinking about side stories or backstories and getting to know know what people are doing. I'm having conversations or they're having conversations that that don't actually make it to the cutting room floor. Yeah. Aren't really part of the central story. But it allows me to get to know them and spend time with them. So it's kind of a an immersive experience yeah. um, when I'm writing. And, yeah, so the redrafting part is awkward to admit, but I don't redraft. <laughs> it's great. It's great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. but, but then on the other hand, I couldn't. I know there's some writers who start with the most important part of a book and then write around. I, I don't, can't do that. I start mm. from the beginning and go through and I can't seem to work out a sequence. So when you're like, what would be a typical writing session for you, Salah? You sit down, are you then just everything's blurting out of you and you're there for hours on end or and is it every day? How does that process work for you? Oh, look, it hasn't been lately because this book has been so big. I've just been doing sort of promotion work and interviews and so on solidly for about two months. So I haven't really written much in two months and killing me to be honest. But but hopefully this week I've got some time back and I can start working again. My typical day is I get up, I shower, I put on a fresh pair of pajamas, I turn nice. on the television, I make sure that the dogs have are fed so that they're happy just to sit at my feet and turn on the television, open the computer, start writing. So it's and it, it's like that sometimes there's some days when I write a thousand words in an hour and some days those a thousand words takes me eight hours yeah yeah so there's ups and downs and there's and what I find always the hardest parts to write the exciting scenes are easy to write where lots happening and there's a lot of action the hardest parts are the little quiet connectors Mm, yeah (laughs) 
get a person for, especially when they have to travel, you have to get them from there to there. And nothing really dramatic is happening. They've just got to get from there to there. And I find those scenes the hard, or take the longest to write because I get distracted by other things and other bits and pieces while I'm writing that. If I'm writing an action scene or a scene where someone dies, that comes out in very quickly and very easily. I think that's the same thing. Yeah. It's trying to finesse the quiet moments that, um, yeah. yeah, but I've also had this rule, and I've always had this rule with my writing. If I was given my way, I would do nothing else but write. I would just sit down and I would write, and there would be nothing else done. So I try, to, I try to say, if there's anything else I want to do, not more than writing, but if there's anything else I want to do, I do that first before oh, I write. Okay. So if I wake up and think, oh, I'd really like to spend some time in the garden. And then I think I really want to write. I want to write more, but I think, no, I want to spend some time in the garden, go and spend some time in the garden. Otherwise, what would happen with me is I'd do nothing else. I'd become boring and my writing would suffer because while you're digging in the garden, you learn things, you discover things just by milling it over in your mind. And you've got to occasionally feed the children, got to occasionally bath the dogs, those sort of things you've got to do. And if you were working it on a priority of what would I rather do, writing would win all the time and the whole place would be a shambles and everything would fall down and I would be this strange person that's not left the laptop in four or five years. Yes, there wouldn't be much there in the creative, I'm guessing, too. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, I, I presume it's the same for a lot of writers. The challenge for us is to be dragged away um, and made to live. Yeah. <laughs> and, and made get to out, get out of that office. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So, so with those <laughs> daily writing sessions, Solari, are you you're working on a scene or whatever? Do you rework that scene during that session or you're not? You're just writing it and then just continuing on? I don't put it down if it's so I when I put a sentence down that sentence is perfect in my mind or perfect yeah says exactly what I wanted to say if it doesn't say exactly what I wanted to say I don't put it down okay yep so once it's down it's exactly what I wanted to say and I don't move on until it's exactly what I wanted to say and I don't tend to even draft sentences I when it's when it comes down, it's right. It's exactly mm. what I want. Mm. So I know there are a lot of writers who who work differently. They sketch. They put down roughly what they want to say and they refine it in the second drafts. But because I don't, it's almost as if I'm going in and working with ink from the very beginning and there's no erasures and there's no finding. Yeah. So how do you find the editing process then when when it gets to the publisher and you're at that stage where they're giving you edits because you have been so like this is the story how does that whole editing process work for you I've never really had structural edits either though wow I'm just trying to think there was so in in this book for example the only thing that came close to a structural edit was there was a suggestion by my editor that maybe I don't want to mention COVID at all. And their argument was not so much one writers, readers were sick of hearing about COVID, but they also thought it might make the novel timeless, more timeless if we didn't mention COVID. But I felt that not mentioning COVID actually dated the novel as a mm. pre-COVID, didn't actually make it timeless. And I just... And I also felt that it was a bit cowardly to just say, oh, it's set in 2019. Yeah. Uh, Otherwise, we're uh, just going to have every book set 
before 2019, aren't we? Forevermore. That's it. There was no literature after 2019. (laughs) It was the day literature died. (laughs) uh, But, yeah, exactly that. So that was the closest thing to a structural edit I got on that. And I wrote back at the time. And it wasn't that I'm opposed to structural edits, but I just said I really thought that. And they said, okay, fine, that seems like a good argument, that's fine. I think can't. No, not even in the Roland Sinclair series was there a structural edit. Okay. So it just it's just the way I write. It comes, yeah. I have I have na- an internal natural structure in my novels. So I have this strange way of writing in that, as I mentioned before, I write without plot. I'm a pantser to the extreme. But I also write with the television on and watching something. And it seems like an odd thing to do and it seems like it would be distracting. And I used to be really cagey about admitting it because it sounds like I don't care about my work. I just write anything, any old thing while I'm watching television. <laughs> but it's not that at all. I was there, I was talking to Kylie Ladd, so uh, yeah, I don't know. Kylie. Kylie, yeah. But Kylie, of course, is a cognitive psychologist. And I remember admitting this that the Emerging Writers Festival, I think it was at one time, and she said to me, oh, no, that makes perfect sense. And what she said was happening is that the creative centre of your brain is in your prefrontal cortex, which is very difficult to access directly. So that's why when you lose a word and you're looking for that word, you can't find it, but you go away and do something else and it suddenly pops into your head. Essentially, what I'm doing is I'm going away and doing something else for 90,000 words. And it, they're popping into my head. <laughs> I'm distracting just enough of my brain that it lets my prefrontal cortex take over and it actually writes the novel. Now, I presume that something in my prefrontal cortex is actually establishing a plot and a structure and a, a coherent narrative into this. But it's not. It's just not bothering to tell the, the poor beleaguered conscious part of my brain unless absolutely necessary. Yeah, yeah. And it seems to me like this is all coming out <laughs> perfectly well formed because I've got this brilliant Chinese wall between my subconscious and my conscious where my conscious can do all this work while the, oh, my, my subconscious can, can do all this work while my conscious is watching Midsummer Murders. I love it. I love it. So do you choose things deliberately to have on the TV? Yeah, yeah. Or is so it just always, any old thing? It's got to be something that doesn't take a huge amount of concentration. So something that has a very familiar format like Midsummer Murders, yeah. all the BBC crime dramas, Lewis, Endeavour, Morse, all of those, they're fine. They have a very familiar, easy structure. There's no huge gun scenes or anything like that. Uh, and I don't have to keep track of who's talking. Uh, or, or, or people's voices seem to be different enough. And that's a wonderful thing about the BBC crime dramas. With all the accents they have, you can almost follow things without even really thinking who's talking yeah. now. So then I can keep my eyes between the screen and the two screens quite easily. So it's always those. I wouldn't try to do it with something that was really, I wouldn't, for example, be watching Shutter Island and yeah. trying to do it. Neither would I be watching something like The Bachelor and trying to write because <laughs> I think it's counter-creative. Do you find that you do you ever find that you're incorporating things that you're watching into the story itself? No, I don't think so. I think maybe there's a feel. The Roland Sinclair series probably has a kind of a BBC crime drama yeah, feel definitely. about. Definitely. 
Yeah. But I'm not sure whether that's because of that or because that's just who I am too. I have a bit of a BBC crime drama feel to me. But no, not in terms of plot or words mm-hmm. or anything like that. Um, I don't believe. I don't I have never seen any similarity anyway. And certainly the contemporary novels have very little to do with Lewis or so yeah it's just strange quirk and it was partly because when I first started writing I didn't know a writer I didn't I'd never met a writer before I was published I had no idea of the scene I was not involved I had never been to a writing class I'd never thought about a writing class I'd never written a short story never entered a competition so I didn't know what was right and wrong and so, yeah. so I developed this kind of weird process and style because there was no one around to tell me that that was odd yeah and and it's just worked so I've just kept kept it that way till the day it stops it may be that this is 15 novels in maybe that for the 16th novel I can't do it anymore yeah yeah and I'll find something else. But while but it's working, moment, go with it. While, yeah, while it's working, <laughs> I'm getting a lot of television watched. <laughs> That's right. And I'm writing novels. Fantastic. So I wanted to ask you a bit about Freddie and the whole the characters in the book who are writers because there are a number of them. Of course, Hannah, who is writing the story yep. itself, and then Freddie or Winifred being the main one. So I'm guessing that... There's a bit of you in each of those characters, but how much of Solari would you say is in Freddie? Because she's the one um, we see the most of, isn't she, really, throughout the novel? Yeah. Oh, look, I think there's certain things that are in Freddie Freddie, that are very consistent with me, but probably I, I might express them differently or, or behave differently. So I, I tend to, this. I like loyalty as a virtue and I tend to be doggedly loyal. And I tend to, it probably is a flaw, unless someone shows me shows me the opposite, I tend to believe the best of my friends until they actually give me incontrovertible proof that's not the case. I just carry on. And I have had some people say that Freddie's incredibly naive and naive for someone who's 27. I think, oh, that's interesting because I think the things that they're accusing her of being naive about are, are the same things that I would do and the same things that I would believe. And I don't actually consider myself particularly naive. Yeah. But it's it's one of those things. I think Freddie's, uh, the way Freddie mind doodles and the way she takes people and pulls them into her novel is something that I do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess that. And <laughs> <laughs> it's just, and names are also a big nightmare for me. I hate naming characters. So I do things like name people heroic chin until the very last moment okay where I find a name that fits them because when you write novels it's not like naming your children it's more difficult because no two characters in a novel can have a name that starts with the same letter that's right all those sort of are in there for novels that don't actually impinge on what you name your children and so I actually find that tedious and I find that when I'm writing especially in that initial creative rush where you have an idea and you just want to write having to come up with names slows you down and stops you Mm. so quite often I'll just put in placeholders so I can just write at speed and then come up with names later on yeah so that that sort of thing works I think maybe Freddie's a bit more of a romantic than I am but that might be because I'm a bit older than her (laughs) (laughs) I was possibly similarly romantic when I was 27 and I think in a lot of ways she's braver 
than I was. I think when I was 27, I would have been terrified of going into a new country and just meeting people and talking to people and making friends. I was probably I was quite shy back then. But I suppose in some ways, a lot of characters are aspirational. I would have liked to be as brave as Betty was. And she's 27. I would have incredibly law-abiding too. I would have had a harder time this doing what Freddie did in the end. Yeah, uh, keeping yeah, keeping things under wraps so much and yeah. yeah. Yeah, because I'm from a Southeast Asian background. We're very law-abiding people. <laughs> I would think, oh no, they know. I would have, yeah. So I I think that was different. I think uh, it, every character is a little bit of the writer and it has yeah. to be for the other character isn't alive. You need some point of connection mm. other, uh, this before a character can live. It doesn't have to be a big point, but you do need some point of connection. So similarly, I have points of connection with Kane, Wits and Marigold. I can see all of them. Marigold has this funny sort of fragility, this need to be liked that I remember from adolescence and Wit has this wonderful, I actually, <laughs> I actually quite liked what Wit was doing to subvert his parents' ambitions by failing out of law school. I just thought that was just <laughs> I love that genius. too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so there's lots of little connections that you have with each character that, that is part of you. So uh, I suppose a, a writer is a very fractured creature. <laughs> Yeah. We're putting little bits of ourselves into everyone. Yeah, for sure. And I loved that. I loved there was somewhere in there a Scooby Doo reference to the to those four characters. And I thought as soon as I read that, because they talked to this, the, the four of them who were trying to unravel these murders and trying to work out what's happened. But I, I really loved that vibe, that sort of Scooby Doo vibe that the four of them seemed to have. <laughs> yeah, I, I think yeah, Wit calls them a deranged Scooby Gang. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a little bit like that. Um, but I remember there was a reviewer who refused uh, this, who referred to Roland Sinclair and his friends as a Scooby gang. And I loved it. I just thought, oh, I never thought of it. And I seem to have this habit of writing foursomes. So in, in the Roland Sinclair books and these books, it just seems to naturally come out as a force. And I'm not sure why. Again, just, if it works, yeah, don't question it. it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So there, there is no rhyme or reason or cognition of any sort behind it. It's just what always happens. Yeah. Uh, there were a few. There was, of course, because it's a book about a writer writing about a writer, there are a lot of references to writing and to the writing process. And I've just picked a couple out, Solari. I was just going to run them by you and, and um, <laughs> maybe chat about them. So this was one that I found. I'm a bricklayer without drawings. So this is Freddie talking. No, this is at the beginning. This is Hannah. I'm a bricklayer uh, no, no, without. Freddie. You, no, it's it Freddie. is Freddie. You never hear directly from Hannah. So it's that's right. That's true. I am a bricklayer without drawings, laying words into sentences, into paragraphs, allowing my walls to twist and turn on a whim. There is no framework, just bricks interlocked to support each other into a story. I have no idea what I'm actually building or if it will stand. And then it goes on to say there's no symmetry, no plan, just the chaotic, unplotted bustle of human life. So would that, that describe your yeah, writing good. process? Yes. <laughs> as soon as I read yeah. that, I thought, oh, that's Solari's. Uh -huh. yeah. So that's a reveal. So that's the interesting thing. I was, I was speaking to Robert Gott about this afternoon and I'm sorry, on the weekend. And 
one of the things is when you're creating characters, when you rob from your own experience, it's just cheating on the research. You're just using the easiest way of research is to rob from your own experience rather than to go out and try and establish some kind of process that belongs to someone else that you don't understand. And that's exactly what I just robbed directly from my own process and gave it to Freddie. Kane, of course, had the opposite end of Mm. the, the process where he plots a lot. He's an extreme plotter and he gets everything into what Freddie describes as spider webs of story. Yes. Funnily and enough, that's the next quote that I pulled out. Okay. <laughs> I'll let you go with the quote. Yeah. So it, this is it. The pages of the notebook are made of a single sheet, concertina folded. I generally use them after a novel is written to map out the narrative so I can see the whole story in a glance and make sure that those threads that need tying up are in fact tied up. Now I plot everything I know from before and since the scream, drawing lines of connection between events and people. And I've made the note there that Kane uses the similar story web method. And I was going to ask you, is that something that you do? No, look, I, I like that. So I have always had a wistful admiration of plotters because they have pretty notebooks. I love notebooks. <laughs> And I have a vast collection of beautiful leather notebooks and they're all blank because oh. and that's going to be my legacy. 40 or 50 blank notebooks is what, what I'm going to leave and that probably speaks to my writing life more than anything else. But I've always loved the idea of having these beautiful notebooks that have structures and the bones of a story written in them. And I've always felt envious of the plotters because they had that. And so... The one thing I do is I have these Japanese notebooks and Japanese notebooks are, they have one long page that's concertina folded into a notebook. And so after I finish a novel, I will use the Japanese notebook to just write out what each chapter does so that I can look at the novel at a glance to make sure that everything's tied up and everything follows. Now that has never yielded the need to change anything. (laughs) but it has given me some notes (laughs) fantastic you get to use the notebook yay exactly I can show some pretty flowcharty sort of things in that sense so when Hannah was and Hannah here not Hannah it's Freddie here is not plotting a novel she's plotting what's gone on in the in real life so that she can try and figure out what's going on So she puts that into a Japanese notebook to try and sketch out the timeline of who's been murdered and who was stabbed and who was who was suspected and who said what so that she can see what's going on. And I I presume that she, like me, is wistfully envious of Kane's spiderwebs in notebooks. (laughs) That's right. It's just really interesting because it's there's so much about writing in this book. And I love the way that you've been able to integrate all these different ideas on how people go about writing but there's so much of your own process in there as well which is yeah look it's again when you're a writer you hang out with a lot of writers so you get to know how everybody works and I find the way process works really fascinating and how Mm. writers are such bower birds in how they take things and then they just twist them a little bit or have them catch the light in a different way and you've got something completely different in their work Yeah, I love that. So we were talking a few questions ago about the pandemic being brought in, and that comes in a lot through, not a lot, and there's mentions of it in the letters that Leo 
writes to yeah. Hannah because he is pushing all the time for, I really think you need to have the pandemic in there and the masks yeah. would be great. And I, lo- I love the way that you incorporated all that into his letters. The other thing that he pushes her to do is to have more reference to the character's race and their racial background. Where did that come from for you in terms of Leo pushing for that? For the story. Look, I actually had this conversation with Larry, not in the same, not with the same tone that Leo delivers it, but it's because I don't define the race of my characters ever. I haven't even defined them in the Roland Sinclair series. People just draw conclusions from what they're doing. And that's fine for the Roland Sinclair series historically, that it makes sense that he's going to be a white man because he's a wealthy man who fits into the establishment in Australia at that time. He's a problem most likely going to be a white man. But in other contexts, there's a reason why people should default to white, but I'm aware that people do. I don't necessarily think that's a racist thing because I default to white. I mm. think it's just a byproduct of generations of Western literature being about white people. And so unless someone is told that the, a character is black, they assume the character is white. I, I think of novels not as writers telling readers what to think or trying to encourage them to think a certain way, but as start as conversations with the reader. And for me, framing that in uh, framing that question in that way, where Leo is encouraging Hannah to actually define the racial backgrounds of her writer uh, of her characters uh, to make the narrative make sense, allows me to bring up that conversation with readers because for a lot of readers it'll be the first time they think hang on maybe those characters aren't white or Mm. maybe some readers would have thought they were all black and will be thinking hang on are those characters white don't tell me they're white (laughs) and uh, so it's those sort of things but I, I was also interested in what Leo says is that in America what color you are affects your narrative it affects yeah, your it was a really interesting and point. Mm. He's right. He's completely right. But Hannah pushes back against it because I think she is idealistically thinking it shouldn't. And if it does, then people should be pulled back from that yeah. uh, notion. And he's saying the reality is it does. If you're a black man walking into a police station is not a great idea. Yeah. It could, could result in the end. So it's those conversations that I wanted readers to have. I wanted them to actually think about that sort of thing. And if that's the case, why it's the case and whether it should be the case and whether something can be done about it. I don't want to lecture anybody mm-hmm. and I know that things change with context and sometimes there's perfectly good reason for race to be to have make a difference or not good reason for it to make a difference but that sometimes in in reality race does make a difference yeah uh, yeah. your outcomes but I would much rather it be a conversation that and something that readers think about and discuss than it be statement or some ticker box thing that I do to bring diverse characters into my book yeah, yeah, no, I think it works really well. And I think it is, like you say, it, it sparks those questions for the reader. Mm. Like, oh, yeah, okay, that is something to think about. The same as the, the whole pandemic thing. And just that it's raised there, but there's no conclusion like drawn. Yeah. It's just there for and us it, to consider. It, the fundamental question is you think if this character was black, and does that change how you feel about him? Mm. And that is a conversation that they can only have with themselves in honesty. 
And so I do want to raise the conversation, but I, uh, the last thing I want to do is tell readers what to think. And I think it's actually far more persuasive and far more effective to let them come to their conclusion yeah. and think about it. It is. It's about that whole thing of the reader participating in the story, isn't it, and being so engaged yeah. with what's happening rather than being told what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. That elusive when I first started to write and people kept saying show, don't tell, and you think, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> and sometime after 15 books I realised, oh, that's what that means. Yeah. <laughs> Still elusive sometimes, but yes. So, Larry, it, the book has a fabulous cover that I just wanted to ask you about. It's just it's got that sort of very 50s, almost Hitchcockian noir feel about it yeah what did you think when you first saw this cover were there others before this or okay so what where I've come from is the American cover so this is the American Ah, cover okay so it's also quite retro but quite dark and and quite literary so I had the Americans and what they were playing on very much in this book is the so this dark meta literary nature of it and I was sent this by the Australians (laughs) And I thought, oh, okay, so this, the Americans think it's dark and literary and the Australians think murder is fun. <laughs> <laughs> sort of says it all really, doesn't it? <laughs> and I just, when I saw it, I laughed for a full three minutes <laughs> before I could pull myself together. <laughs> and, and, but you know what? I, 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 the, the, this cover depicts the book as much as that cover it just concentrates on the lighter the prose and the the witty nature of it I think one one focuses on the metafictional literary bits and pieces and it's just a it's really indicative of the different markets it is uh, the way they go so it's the book's been sold into a few other countries into translation so I'll be really interested to see what they come up with too yeah but yeah it's both both the covers have grown on me a lot in uh, over time in, when I first saw this I thought gosh that's boring <laughs> it's the American one yeah. American one but I've come to really love it and I have always followed that what I know is what's between the covers that's where wow. my expertise lies so that's what I'll fight for what's between the covers the title all the other bits that clothe the story other people have that expertise they know how to speak to the market and so much of a cover is about speaking to the market, mm. signalling readers that this is what this book is about. And there seems to be a code there that I'm not aware of, yeah. uh, but there definitely is a code and publishers know that sort of thing. And so I go with the flow with that. And I'm glad I did because I really both covers now and it's really quirky, interesting to have two such different covers for the same book. Yeah, um, it would be. Okay. What about the title? Was that your original title? No, my original title was Letters from Leo. Okay. Uh, but the America, it didn't work with this. So the book was sold in America first. Okay. So when they were dealing with the manuscript, they said, no, that won't work here. That doesn't say crime fiction here. And that's true. It doesn't say crime fiction. That could be a literary novel or a memoir or something. And it's, again, what I said about codes and signals and, and not understanding those. So they did a full-on focus group thing where they had 100 titles and they focus grouped it in different sessions until they came to three titles. There was The Woman in the Library and then the other title was The People in the Reading Room Are Liars and then there was a third one that I can't even remember what the third one is. But The Woman in the Library rated much higher than everything else. 
that's the kind of book that people will pick up and read. So I said, sure, that'll be fine. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and and so they went ahead and that's proved to be the case and I remember being a little bit concerned because only the opening scene really is in the library but they said oh, that's, no, right. that's right that, that's not a that's not a problem that's enough and I and I was talking to my friend Angela Savage who is a writer but she's also CEO of Public Libraries Victoria now and she said no Solari it's a win there's a there are whole vast tracts of people who will read any book with the word library on the, in the title. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a sales boom. And, and I don't know that's what, whether that's why people are reading it, but certainly it seems to have picked up yeah. a huge what following. What sort of feedback are you getting from your American audience? It's been, look, it's been really terrific. It's, it's sold huge. Oh, America's a big market. Yeah. So big sales in America are unbelievable in Australia so and this is the first time I've had this kind of breakout where people are where there's buzz about a book in the past I've had publishers talk to me about buzz and I never understood what the heck it was (laughs) 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 until this book where I can see how buzz is working okay and it becomes and why one book becomes part of the zeitgeist is hard to tell but really it's I think the zeitgeist is about not necessarily people saying this is the best book I've ever read, but people saying you have to read this book. It's so weird. Yeah. <laughs> I need you to tell me what you think of this book. And people want to talk about it to each other. I think that's a really important thing too. Yeah, yeah exactly. It took me 15 novels to work that out. <laughs> but, yeah, so it's gone. It's been really Wonderful. I think one of the things I've been a prime writer for a long time. So as I said, this is my 15th book and my 12th crime novel. And I love the genre. I love the traditional structure of crime fiction. I love writing the Roland Sinclair series. I love, I love that form because it gives you so much scope to do so much. But there is a time as a writer where you feel like you want to add something to the genre. You want to write a novel that's truly novel to twist the form as well as just the plot. And so I think the woman in the library and even crossing the lines have been my attempts to do that. It's to just to add something to its genre and give back to crime fiction something entirely new that nobody yeah. else has done before. And I'm sure that people will go on to use this kind of format and write better books than I have written. But what what I've done is, well, as far as I know, something that no one else has ever written before mm. in terms of structure. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think it's, I think that's all that. And I, and I love that the, the U.S., certainly appreciates that yeah um, it's exciting it's really exciting yeah, yeah. It, it is and look it's a great moment for Australian writers in the US we're getting attention all over the place mm. and, and that's thanks to people like Jane Harper and Leon Moriarty and Sally Hepworth all doing amazing things over there and all of a sudden America is not readers are very generous they're much more open I think to adopting other countries, and I suppose that's because they're the biggest. They're not threatened yeah. by any. And uh, it's been historically, it's been quite a closed door for Australian authors, hasn't it? Yes. Until recently, yes, it's been. Well, until recently, it was. Until recently, writing a book set in Australia was a disaster. And certainly, when I was writing the Roland Sinclair series, I did have requests from publishers to say, "Can you write something like the Roland Sinclair series, but set in the set in London or New York?" 
And I remember at the time saying, the Robert Sinclair series is about Australian history. I can't really say it's not quite going to work. But I do find that Americans are much more interested in Australia now yeah. uh, than they ever have been. I think in a lot of ways, they've always recognised that Australians were different to them in a way that we didn't. We thought, oh, we're very similar to the Americans. Mm. and But in reality, there are some very maybe subtle but distinct differences in the way that we look at the world and they seem to be quite intrigued by that. Yeah. And I think now writers are actually looking at those differences instead of trying to hide it and trying to make their Australian characters Americans with Akubras instead of Stets. Yeah. We're writing characters that are truly Australian and with Australian outlook and Australian history, Australian guilt, Australian Australian shame and Australian same time. Yeah. So it's all of that. And so, it's yeah, it's a wonderful time to be an Australian writer. Yeah, brilliant. Larry, you've been really generous with your time, but I just wanted to ask you, as someone who's been writing, you've written 15 novels, you have been doing this for quite a while now. Over the time that you've been writing, I think it would be fair to say that the whole business side of writing for an author has changed quite a lot in terms of what publishers expect from you with social media and conferences and talks and things like that. How do you like those changes? And is that are those things something that you enjoy doing? Or how where do you see yourself in terms of that business side of writing? Sometimes sometimes I'm terrible at it, as you see, you check my a website, you'll notice that it hasn't been updated in nearly a year because you get busy and things fall by the wayside. Look, so, some of it is brilliant. The con, I do the contact with readers. I do going out and talking to readers. Sometimes it can get crazy. Sometimes mm -hmm. the best that readers want to writers can mean that you actually are getting less and less time to write. And that I think can be difficult there there is also now a new push for writers to have thousands and thousands of followers and I think that can be a rabbit hole from which you might never extract yourself so the policy I've always followed is I do what I want so if I want to be on Facebook I'll do faith and I don't mind being on Facebook I quite like the interactions I have a Twitter account I have an Instagram account but I don't feel under any pressure to have followers I don't feel under any pressure to garner this to get viral in yeah, anything yeah. I and I try to be just honest and deal with people as if I deal with them face to face so that the problem with I remember when I first started the they were talking about media training authors to get mm. us and I always refused to be media trained because to me you could always hear when an author had been media trained when you listen to them talk. It's and I thought lack no, of authenticity isn't there. It's the putting yeah. on a show type thing, yeah. Yeah, and I, I never wanted to go there. And I, do, I just don't think it works either. I think readers are cleverer than that. They can pick up authenticity. They've got authenticity radars. Yeah. Uh, and also it's really hard to remember. If you've been media trained, you have a spiel. You've got to memorise the spiel and memorize how to say it every time if you, all you're saying is the truth as you believe it to be at the time and I will have disclaimer in that every time I speak <laughs> I speak truthfully as I believe it to be at the time my opinion may change the next day but at the time I am honestly telling you what I believe it to be and that's easy to remember <laughs> I don't have to go to any orchestration for that. Look, it's an interesting change where authors are having to take on some of the mantles of minor celebrity 
Yeah. And some of the benefits of that are lovely. The contact you have. Meeting readers for me has always been like meeting friends of my children. Uh, <laughs> you have someone in common and, yeah. and it's lovely. And I've been introduced to some wonderful people through Roland Sinclair and my other books. But by the other token, some of this, some of what we create is create is necessarily created in solitude and loneliness. Mm. And if you take that away from us, it's you're interfering with whatever creative chemistry is at play. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah, that's true. Larry, what's next for you? Are you like I know you said you're coming to the end of the promotion period. You're itching to get back to the writing. Are you working on any more Roland Sinclair or another standalone? What do you think will be next? Oh, I look, I'm not coming to the end. I'm just about to go on tour to America. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a gap. For some reason, there's a week where there's not a lot on and I, that's why I'm getting into the writing in that week. Look, I have another book that's about ready to go, which I'm trying to finish, which is why I really want to get into it in this week. It was a book where the narrative was altered by COVID. Okay. So this is my first, and despite everything I said, this is the first time I'm going back and trying to not so much restructure, but put in other themes and other layers to a book. I don't know if it'll work. I'm hoping I'll be able to pull it off because it's adding rather than changing structure. But this was a book that was written before, before The Woman in the Library, but it was written pre-COVID. Right. And COVID actually changed how the plot would work. Otherwise, I would have just said it's a pre-COVID novel, but it's it can't work anymore. I'm going back to change it. So the main, the, the American characters in that book are doomsday preppers. Oh, so okay. imagine oh, how COVID would make a big difference. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so that's what I'm working on now. I'm halfway through a Roland Sinclair novel, which I'll get to. I get a lot of letters from Roland Sinclair readers demanding the next Roland Sinclair novel. It's not just up to me. I have publishers who are willing to yeah. take it on. And and then I have another novel. So I wrote a, a trilogy a long time ago that was more in that YA fantasy. Oh, I saw that on your website. Yeah. Yeah, the hero trilogy. And so I've written another book in that genre that I'm it's sitting there with me wondering what the heck I'm gonna do with it because I'm trying to establish my name as a writer of mystery and suspense. And here I've got this book out of left field. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want, but it's the first book in a sort of a trilogy that deals a lot with climate change and things okay. like bushfires and so on in a sort of an oblique way. But I do want to, I do feel the need to finish it at some mm. point. So there's all that going on. And of course, I don't know what ideas will come to me tomorrow. That's right. Who knows who'll send me a picture of a dead body tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> or any other sort of picture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Please don't send me any pictures of dead bodies. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Keep that in the novel, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was kidding about that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you don't know whether the greatest idea of your life is going to hit you in the face when you mm. go to the next room. So there's that. And this is my, there's a ghost story. I've always wanted to write oh. an Australian ghost story. Fantastic. Um, and I don't know why, but I loved them when I was a kid. I loved, and it's been so long since I've read a really novel ghost story, something that's not the standard haunting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I've been, and I was in the middle of writing another book when one of my characters said something, and I thought, gee, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so, for that idea. 
<laughs> so I've got that stowed away. And and I killed the character, unfortunately, just after that. It seems like a poor way to thank him. But, <laughs> but, oh, he but served I've his purpose. That, <laughs> I've got that stowed away to work on at some point. Oh, it's very exciting. Lots of things happening. Just to wrap up, Solari, what would you say is at the heart of your writing? Heart of my writing, I think it is, I think it's actually a joy in the process of writing, a joy and, and a sense of discovery because of the way I write, but all of this in terms of plot, but also why I write to discover things about what I think of the world and how the world works. I don't write because I know, I write because I'm trying to work it out. And I think that's at the heart of my writing. I love that. That's a perfect place to end, I think. <laughs> Let you get on with your day. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women. Find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>